Well, welcome. I am uh, Kevin Dormer. If I haven't gotten to meet you guys before, I'm always honored when I get the chance to to teach. Um, a couple of times last semester, I think I caught, taught a couple if I didn't get to uh, meet you guys before, but I'm thankful y'all are here. And tonight, kind of my, what I really want to emphasize is anytime we have these classes, and I, I kind of fall victim to it too, it's very easy to go into receive mode, especially when it's a better teacher than me, where we, we absorb these things and we think, man, that was great, but it's sometimes difficult to figure out what do I do with that? What do I take this, this knowledge, how do I apply it to my life to live differently this next week, year, whatever it is? And uh, as a lot of us are, are still missing uh, Tim, obviously, the stories that I keep hearing about him uh, include just how he was very intentional on decisions he made with other people that he was around, and therefore they were impacted by the daily things that he did to reach out to people, to show kindness to them. And um, so I, I hope that as we go through this stuff tonight, you'll have that same kind of mindset of, okay, what do I do with this? How can I change the way I live on a daily basis and not just take in information for information's sake? Because that's, that's what I always have to fight against because we get lots of great info, uh, but sometimes we don't always put it into applications. So I'm going to try to focus on that as well with the things that we're going to talk about. So um, last week, I'll hit a couple highlights of what Rick talked about last week. This one is kind of not looking back at the past as much, but now what? What is the plan with respect to trying to reach culture? And is that, is that ringing or is it okay, volume-wise? You guys all right? Okay. So big picture we're going to talk about. What does it mean to try to shape culture? And then a couple different areas in there. So what is our, our posture towards the culture? What direction do we go? How do we make sure that we have the right map, knowing where we are and where to go from there, and actually take action, like we were talking about a minute ago? And then the challenges of culture and engagement, because we know that that's not easy. So one example, um, there's a guy named Pete Thomas, who, growing up, he was abandoned by his father. He was living uh, with a homeless mother who was mentally ill, and so they were moving around a lot. And finding food became a very real concern. And so that was one of the things that he was always concerned with, was just trying to find food to be able to eat. Well, after making it through that and getting to, thank you for opening that, um, getting to the point where he persevered, was able to get a, de a degree, had his own business, got married, he still had some of those same um, thoughts from growing up where food was scarce. And so he ended up you know, after about 10 pounds a year, he ended up weighing about 416 pounds. And he was on The Biggest Loser, if you guys ever watched that. And on that show, back in 2005, he lost about 185 pounds, which is amazing. Um, but even more impressive than that is he built uh, basically a structure around himself in the form of accountability, where he would give speeches, he would give uh, training opportunities, because that showed people that his message was matching up with his actions. And that accountability is what enabled him to keep going. Because if you ever watched that show, sometimes people would struggle after the show was done to have the habits in place and the accountability to be able to keep up that same process and not go back to the way they were before. And so when, as we address culture and our own individual lives, we kind of have to do the same thing. We look at what bad habits can we avoid, but you can't just do that. You can't have that void there. You have to fill them with pursuing good ones. Pastor Steve talks a lot about whether it's with demonic possession, you know, he talks about when you clean things out, you got to replace it with something else, otherwise you end up back in the same thing again. So it's, it's kind of that same idea. The good news is, um, in, in culture, 
man, we're dealing with a culture that is exhausted. They're in pain. They're fighting insecurity. And rather than trying to escape that or kind of go to our own holy, holy huddle and just kind of isolate ourselves, we have the ability to go and have an enormously positive impact on a culture that is broken and is searching for lots of different forms of truth, and they're looking in the wrong places. But where do we start? You know, politics is off on a hot button. Um, you know, laws can discourage negative behavior, and they're therefore very important. We see what happens when we get rid of laws or we don't have people there to actually enforce those laws. It never turns out very well. But laws can't inspire people to be better, right? You can punish bad behavior, but you can't use a law to inspire someone to do the right thing. Um, the flip side of that is some people therefore avoid politics entirely because, well, that's, that's downstream from culture, so we don't need to start with politics. But that's kind of like saying, I can't, you know, I can't start eating healthy until I lose some weight first. I'll start a business when I have enough customers to do that. Or there's a really old Steve Martin joke where he's like, all right, here's how you become a millionaire. First, you start with a million dollars. That's a bad joke. But it's the same idea. You gotta, uh, you can't just wait. You can do a, it's a both and of how we address politics because politics is morality codified into law, right? That's the whole point of what the political process is supposed to do. So the question is, well, whose morality are you going to have put into law? Is it going to be a Judeo-Christian ethic that gets codified into laws that now we try to have people live by? Or is it just somebody else's ethics? It's going to be somebody's moral standard, but which one? So it's not a, uh, it's not a we're going to have a moral standard or none at all. It's always going to be somebody's morals driving politics. So we'll get into more of that in a little bit. But in general, we need to have a posture of engagement. We're going to talk more about that. That means we need to be able to read, write, and share culture with others in a direction of engagement, so an intentional focus based on the biblical view of history. And that that's view of history and the reality that we're in, we know as Christians, that is the story of reality. Other people um, have a different view of what is true and what is real, but the Christian story is what we view as believers. That is the accurate view of reality, of what happened in the past and what's taking place now, all the way to like what we see in our own our, our hearts and our own struggles. So a way you can think about this is uh, an offensive or a defensive preparation type posture and then an offensive, how do we engage the culture? Um, when I was back in the Air Force, we would train for different tactical situations where you had to fight what we call defensive BFM, uh, basic fighter maneuvers. So if somebody suddenly showed up behind you, you had to know, okay, how do I fight this person that now has a an advantage against me when you're not prepared for it. And conversely, when you have the offensive role, what do you do in that circumstances? And as Christians, we're not looking to we're not looking to fight. It's not that same situation, but we need to be prepared when the culture confronts us with something. Okay, I'm I'm prepared to respond to that. One, because I know what is true. Two, because I care about this individual, this this soul that I'm dealing with, even if they're being really mean, and to be able to respond with truth even if you're feeling like, man, I kind of want to be mean back because they're being really hostile. But because of who we serve, we know we don't have to do that. So being prepared can help us do that better. So let's talk about that posture, uh, reading, writing, and sharing culture. So a way you can think about a posture is kind of like your stance. You're, you're ready to respond in a bunch of different ways to be able to spring into action. And uh, we talked about in the previous lessons what, what makes up culture. So we talked about artifacts, institutions, practices, um, belief styles, meta-beliefs, so those meta-narratives, the grand story that Rick talks about. And then we also talked about culture shapers who, by acting on biblical principles, uh, changed the course of history. We gave a lot of those with respect to abolition. A bunch of examples I won't go back into. One of them that's come to mind lately 
Have you heard of just war theory? Have you heard of that before? So it's the, the concept that in a war, there are certain things that you do within conflict that are just to be able to achieve the right objectives of, of victory, but not at the cost of doing these things over here. Rape, um, you know, killing innocents intentionally. Those things fall under just war theory, and we study that in the military, but we take that for granted. That's not a normal thing when you look throughout history. Part of conquest was all of those other things combined in the past. When you look at lots of other different groups of people that were taking over, you could assume that those things were going to happen because that was normal until the Judeo-Christian ethics started to get filtered into government and even how we do things like fight wars in a way to meet a meet an end that is correct without you know sacrificing all morals in the process of doing so. That's why you have the Geneva Convention saying, we'll do these things, but not these things. We've seen plenty of examples of that recently, right? Obviously, Hamas has not bought into just war theory, and it shocks us when we see those things, but it's easy to forget that's normal. That's what warfare used to look like before the impact of this type of worldview, even on things like, like war. So what does that faith posture uh, look like to engage others? First of all, it should come from a desire to know God and please him. If we believe that everything that we do should be an outflow of our relationship with God, then we want to do this correctly and we want to know him better. So it's, it's thoughtful. Oh my, I hit the wrong button there. There we go. It's thoughtful. Um, Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. We shouldn't be intellectually passive. And I was thinking about that. I don't know if it's possible to be intellectually passive. You can be for a very short amount of time, but if anything else changes around you, now your passivity has resulted in now becoming irrelevant or not able to engage whatever has happened. That was true um, when we were doing uh, operational tests where we had to develop tactics against how do we respond to this new threat that's come out of China or whatever. And so you couldn't just stay passive because the threat was always changing. So we would have to analyze that and say, okay, what do we need? Are we deficient in technology or tactics or something else? If you just stayed passive pretty soon, you were left behind, right? And it's the same thing with us. Culture is changing. Yeah, and this, this sounds almost heretical, but if you were to share just, well, the Bible says this, or share this you know, Bible story that I grew up with, making a lot of it, you know, when I, when I was in high school and before especially, I just kind of assumed all those things were true. If you asked me, why do you believe this is true? I probably would have said something like, well, because the Bible says it's true. Or we just, we know it is, we believe it. And that kind of could, you could get by for a little bit as a young person in a culture that wasn't coming after you as a Christian. That is not the case anymore with adults and especially with young people. And so if we stay passive and don't continue to engage in that way, then we, we can't respond correctly to the culture. It's intentional. I kind of hit on that a little bit already. Know what is a good uh, strategy for going after it. If we don't feel like we're going against the flow pretty routinely, we're probably not doing something right. We should, we should feel that push that we're having to make conscious decisions to go against the culture, not in a way that's like just to be contrary, but to know that, well, the Christian worldview says, I, I want to look like this, and the culture's saying, I need to do this over here. So if we're not feeling that, then we're, there's a chance that we're just going with the flow a little bit too much. The other thing about that posture is um, 
the effect on culture is long-term. Like an artist that makes a marble sculpture, sculpture hundreds of years later, uh, people can still see the impact of what they did. And the same thing, we, we affect all those parts of culture for our lifetimes. And just war theory is kind of one example of culture being impacted by the truth. And then lastly, if we believe about the world, what we do, uh, what we do believe is true, then how can we just be bystanders? Are we willing to just be passive if we believe that we've never met a mere mortal, as C.S. Lewis says, every person that you meet is a soul that's going to spend eternity in one of two places, right? Um, so how should we be, why should we be willing to just be a bystander if that's true? Okay, so if we're committed uh, to these parts of an engagement, that part of the posture, we're going to do three things. We contemplate culture. We need to become culturally literate. We uh, cultivate culture, living with virtue, awareness, and wisdom, and then we enter into community. So we involve ourselves with people um, that are like-minded that are also challenging us to be better. You're like, man, three points, all with C's? I mean, that's like a making of a sermon right there. We could just start with that. So let's talk about those. Contemplating culture. Let me work with complicated machines that if you didn't read the instruction manual, there was a very high chance that you were going to get injured or killed or it was going to be very expensive because you were going to mess something up. Does anybody work, work with machines like that in their day-to-day job? So you know they exist, right? I was thinking of like, well, an x-ray machine, if you mess that up, you can obviously damage the person or yourself. Uh, an arc welder, like things that if, like, huh, you know, Kevin's just going to go figure this thing out. If I turn on enough knobs and then try to light it, I'm sure I can figure it out. No, I'd probably blow myself up if I was, you know, not knowing what I was doing. Culture is kind of the same way. If we're not literate with what is happening in culture, it is affecting us. It's affecting our, our young people. It's affecting everybody around us if we're not aware of what's actually taking place with this complicated machine uh, of culture. Colossians uh, 4, 5, and 6 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That part's really important, right? How we engage with each person is going to be different based off of what worldview they're coming from, what maybe baggage from the past they're also dealing with, uh, etc. So that comes from being culturally literate. I want to read this quote. Um, from a guy named Kevin Van Hooser, making the point that being culturally illiterate is actually dangerous. So he says, cultural literacy is harmful to our spiritual health. Christians need to know how to read culture because first, it helps us know what is forming one's spirit. It helps to be able to name the powers and principalities that vie for the control of one's mind, soul, heart, and strength. Christians need to become culturally literate second so they can be sure that the scripts they perform in everyday life are in accordance are in accord with the scriptures. So think about that. The scripts they perform in everyday life match up with what the scriptures say. Because we often think about, yeah, it, it matches on Sunday, maybe Wednesday night, you know, other things that are carved out of my life. But what about my everyday decisions? Do those match up with scripture? The story of what God is doing in Jesus Christ through the Spirit to give meaning and life to the world rather than some other story. Finally, Christians need to become culturally literate because we need to know where we are in the drama of redemption. And we'll talk about redemption in a little bit. So that's why it's important. Uh, the other thing to think about, and you'll see a common thread, I think, um, in this topic of having a critical lens of everything that we take in on a daily basis. It's very easy to have that intellectual passivity that we talked about and just kind of absorb things, but not critically look at it and think, what is actually taking place here as I'm watching this show or listening to this podcast or music or whatever? So every text in a culture's media 
And text is, uh, that term from previous weeks means media in general, movies, books, art, etc. has something behind it, in it, and in front of it. And we need to understand all those for our own protection and, and understanding, but also because of our love for people and, and curiosity for learning. So what's behind the cultural text? How's it communicated? How does it grab our attention? Does it do so with excellence? Um, there's a guy, that I think Rick has quoted from this book before, it's called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. And he wrote it, I think back in like 1987, or before that actually. Uh, but one of the things he talks about, it's another book where, kind of like George Orwell, you know, in 1984, if he could see some of the things today, he'd be like, man, I totally undershot on that book. But with Amusing Ourselves to Death, he talks about the medium, the way that we absorb information is sometimes just as or more important than the information itself. And I'll give you an example. Uh, prior to the existence of television and the evening news, when you'd go to watch news and someone is telling you, seven people died in this carjacking, and the weather tomorrow is this, and this is what's going on in this other country, and there's just this weird, like there's no break between, is this something I'm supposed to mourn or seriously consider, followed by something entertaining, followed by something else. It's just kind of this incongruous set of information that becomes, it's really just entertainment. If you ever find, I'm not doing anything with this knowledge, it's, you're really just being entertained. And he says that medium, the way that we're getting that information, changes us. And you see even more extremes of that now where, you know, 30 second or even less, you know, videos or sound bites is all that we can handle. We should look at these things and ask, what is this doing to us? Even just, where is this coming from? What is the impact that this is having on me? Even before we get to the content itself, just how we're absorbing that information. So second to that, what's behind the text? What is in the text? So what is the message? That's kind of the obvious one, right? Uh, for example, with uh, young people today, and especially with girls that are struggling with so many self-image things, which is, was true in the past, but when you look at you know, the, the use of models that are just perfectly airbrushed and just no imperfections at all, what is that saying? What is the message there about what is the good life? What is the value of people? Where does it come from? What does it mean to be beautiful? All those things are kind of embedded in something that you really maybe don't even ask the question, but we should. We should ask the question of what is in that message. And then lastly, what's in front of the text? So where is it taking us? What problem is it trying to solve? What kind of anxiety is it trying to relieve? To what end is it drawing us toward? So those are all questions that I don't routinely you know, ask, but I'm trying to do a better job of it, whether something comes up that's a commercial uh, and our kids are there asking them, hey, what, is, what do you think that's trying to tell us? What are they selling? Not just like, hey, you should buy this thing, but what's the other message that's going on? And just have, that, have your radar up to those things that are taking place. Okay, so that's how we read and, in other words, uh, examine culture. How do we actually write it? So writing culture uh, requires a lot of intellectual engagement. And if we think back, I don't know that Christians have done a great job of that. Um, we'll talk a little bit of how the role of emotions and feeling have made this false dichotomy between Christianity is a, a feeling religion versus, well, there's also this role of the mind. And where do those two things overlap? Um, in the 1950s, a student of C.S. Lewis at Oxford University, he said, um, there is no longer a Christian mind. He was saying it as a criticism towards Christianity of where's the, where's the deep thinking and the rational thought? It's kind of disappeared. I don't know. Hopefully, I don't know how he would feel today. Would he feel like 
the move back towards those things is good, or would he be more disappointed? I don't know. Uh, in the last hundred years or so, Christians have been known instead for emphasizing a personal feeling of connection with God rather than thinking robustly about what is going on in the world around them. And that's not saying that feelings or emotions are bad. We know that we're created with all of those things, but we're also created with a mind, and there is an irrefutable connection between what we take in in our minds and what our soul is willing to accept. Like if I tried to tell you, if I said, I will, Don, I will give you a million dollars if you can believe that this podium is not here. A million dollars, like straight out. I may even show it to you in a little suitcase, you know. It wouldn't be possible. I could not get you to believe that because your senses, your mind says, man, I would really like to believe that that podium is not there, but I can't because my mind says it's there even though I want it. So that connection between the mind and the soul is always going to be a factor. So think about that concern uh, in the context of personal uh, conversion and salvation. So let me read this quote. This is from uh, another one of my favorite books. It's called Love Your God With All Your Mind by J.P. Moreland. It is a, it's a challenging book, at least for my brain, but it's one that is worth reading through a couple times. He, he talks about a lot of things like, as Christians, instead of making kind of a, a split between those who are called into ministry and everybody else, he says, well, we're all called into ministry. And that's the good news and bad news is the Great Commission and making disciples, you know, if, if you felt like, if you feel like you're left out of the ministry, well, I got good news for you. We're all called to do that, and we're all going to be disciples and ambassadors for Christ. The question is, what kind? Are you going to be a good one or a bad one? And so he, he talks about what do we do with our vocations? What does it mean for someone to get mentored, and how do I be a Christian businessman? How do I be a Christian person in the military, a Christian nurse? Like, what does that look like as opposed to, well, yeah, being a Christian pastor or somebody else? Like, we kind of understand that those go together, but how does that work with all the other vocations? So anyway, it's a great book, but here's what he says in that book. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with the emphasis of these movements on personal conversion. When he's talking about uh, emotions and uh, with respect to conversion and salvation, what was a problem, however, was the intellectually shallow, theologically illiterate form of Christianity that came to be part of the populist Christian religion that emerged. One tragic result was what happened in the so-called burned-over district in the state of New York. Thousands of people were converted to Christ by revivalist preaching. And this isn't always the case, but sometimes when you think of revivalist preaching, you think of a lot of motion, like a you know, charged kind of event. But they had no real intellectual grasp of Christian teaching. So it was missing the other part. So what happened? As a result, two of the three major American cults began the burned over district among the unstable, untaught converts, Mormonism in 1830 and the Jehovah's Witnesses in 1884. And when you think about those, there's some commonality. If you've ever talked to somebody who's a Mormon, you, if you start talking about um, evidence and data from the Bible, what scriptures say, Eventually, you reach an impasse where they'll say, well, you know, I prayed that God would show me what is true, and he told me that uh, Mormonism is true and Jehovah's Witness, or, uh, sorry, one blanking on his name, Joseph Smith, <laughs> thank you, that Joseph Smith is his, it was, is his prophet. And so now you're kind of at a point, well, how can you refute that if somebody says, well, I just, I know it's true, I prayed about it and God told me it's true, is there some amount of evidence that you can say to bring to that sort of a conversation? You're kind of stuck. 
So you see how some of those things could come from feelings-based or spirituality-based that is maybe separated from the intellectual side, and, and those parts were missing. So without getting into the detail, that is just a physical place. That's what it was called. I don't know why it was called that, but that area is where some of those revivals, that revivalist preaching was taking place, and from out of that, you had the birthplace of some of those cults. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it, w it was a specific area that it kind of was taking place, and so that's where those came out of. Does that make sense? I can look up some more information on it too, but that's a good question. Thinking about belief, does our faith in something make it true? No, no matter how much faith I have in something, does that make it true? Truth, if we subscribe to the... Um, the definition of truth, that's the correspondence theory, which means something is true if it corresponds to reality. If it matches up with the way things really are, it doesn't matter how much I believe it or don't believe it. It's either true or it's false. If, uh, you know, if one of you suddenly stops believing in gravity, you're not going to start floating up towards the ceiling and be like, no, just believe, you'll come back. You know, it's, just, it's either true or it's not. Um, so sometimes we mix that up in our minds. We think about our, our faith. Well, that doesn't cause something to be true. We put our trust in something because it is true. And thankfully, God gives us a lot of evidence to, to back up the things that we believe as well. Okay, i got to go faster. I can't talk this much. Talked about that. So what is it that we're trying to cultivate? Virtue, awareness, and wisdom. So virtue, that results from cultivating our souls to the point where our actions naturally match our beliefs. Man. I would love that to always be the case in my own life, where my actions always match up with my beliefs. And this reminded me of the quote from last week where Rick said, um, someone had said in another circumstance, well, your beliefs don't really matter. It's just your actions that matter. You guys remember that? That was one of the quotes he had up there. He said, well, it was a complaint about just you know, how you make decisions and that sort of thing. And the quote was, only your actions matter, not your beliefs. Well, what could you say to somebody if you were to put your, your Greg Kokel hat on? I know, I know Don's read that book, and you have as well. What could you ask somebody if they said, well, you know, beliefs don't matter. It's just your actions that matter. Yeah, that's right. So you start with, like, what do you mean by that, right? Just try to gather more information. You don't have to go right to the offensive, ask questions. Yes, how'd you come to that conclusion? Very good, very good. Because what they're really saying is, your beliefs are irrelevant. It's just your actions that matter. But could you ever find someone who is acting in a way in contrary to their own beliefs? If you really think about it, any action that you take, even someone who is insane, is still acting off of their own beliefs, even if their mind is broken. Your actions always line up with your beliefs. So if we look at our own actions in our own lives and say, man, those don't line up with what I say I believe, we have to examine those and say, what is, it, what is it about my beliefs that are not actually lining up? Does that make sense? I, I gave an example, I think, teaching the middle schoolers that if I tell everybody giving is really important, you know, God blesses us through the opportunity to give. He doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our, our petty cash. He gives us that opportunity as a way of worshiping. But if you look at my bank account and there's exactly zero giving in there, what do I really believe? 
No, it's better for me to hang on to it, right? That's what my real belief is, no matter what I say. So that's all I'm getting at there is our actions should line up with our beliefs. Um, and if they don't, we need to examine why. I'll skip past that. So um, the other part, awareness. True virtue doesn't separate us from the world. Instead, it makes us more skillful in engaging it. And then wisdom. Uh, virtue and awareness combine to produce what Aristotle called prudence or practical wisdom. So here's an example of virtue, awareness, and wisdom. When we look through that same lens we were talking about earlier at something even as simple as music, we recognize that music is extremely powerful. You know, I'm sure you can think of different things uh, classically, like some stuff from Chopin, Pachelbel Canon. There's lots of different uh, musical pieces that you can listen to, and you just think, man, that is really powerful. And it makes sense in the context of God creating us to be beings that would appreciate something like that. But because music is so powerful, when you combine that with lyrics that are also completely contradictory to the Christian worldview, do we look at that? Do we look at the music we listen to and say, man, something about that, I, I don't know that I need to be feeding that into my life because music is powerful. And I won't go into specific examples, but there's a lot of musicians that are maybe, we view them as not as bad as others. And so we ourselves, or we let our young people listen to them like, oh, well, he's fine or she's fine. It's not that big a deal. But if you ever look at the lyrics and look at what worldview is being pushed, man, it's, it's 180 out from what we believe as Christians. So that's what it takes is to actually um, really be willing to examine those things with wisdom. Okay, we talked about that gap. Okay, culture shapers try to get into the fray. We want to do that in, in community. If you want to achieve the excellence and focus necessary to generate good culture, you have to find out where culture is formed and go there. There's that uh, quote from Willie Sutton, a famous bank robber, when they asked him, like, why do you keep robbing banks? He said, well, that's where the money is. You go to the place to get more of what you need. Get it? It's a bad, it's a bad response, but it makes sense. A lot of great chefs have started out interning with other chefs. Like, you go to where people are good at something to pre pursue more of that. The, uh, if you've ever heard of the Inklings, like the Oxford Scholars, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, there's a bunch of those guys that would go and hang out at a pub in England, and through their different minds talking about things, they, they all grew in different ways because they were pursuing to be better uh, as writers. So find a group that challenges you. you know, try to find a group of like-minded people that draw you towards that, that also want to pursue these same things. Don't worry if it's a, a small group, it doesn't matter. Um, you just need the energy to continue to pursue it, even if you just have a few people that are like-minded. The one last thing I'll add on here is, um, well, I'm gonna skip past that for time. Okay, so pursue the community, and then now what? What's the direction that we need to go to try to engage culture? Not to act is to act. To do nothing is really the same. You're, you're making a choice and you're choosing to act um, not in a way to help. Throughout history, evils just as often been due to the good things people have failed to do as much as the bad things they've done. There's this interesting, um, I hadn't heard this before, but someone named Amos Elon wrote in an introduction to this book by Hannah Arendt about the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who is the architect of the final solution with the Jewish people. Um, and he said, evil comes from a fa failure to think. 
After observing how very little the plain and undistinguished Eichmann cared about the consequences of his actions, Arendt realized that evil often cloaks itself in ordinariness. She called it the banality of evil. The same thing, actually, to some degree, was true with Hitler. Like, I, when you picture what Hitler would have been like, you kind of picture, at least in my mind, this guy who's just mad all the time, like this angry madman. He, might, he could have been just foaming at the mouth as he's trying to figure out how to carry out this extermination of the Jews. But according to Albert Speer, who was Hitler's architect and his close companion, Here's what, uh, here's what he wrote. The reality is that Hitler was a superficial, cynical man who wasted his time on trivial pursuits. In his book, Inside the Third Reich, written during the 20-year sentence he served for his crime, Speer said that Hitler usually appeared late morning around 11 o'clock. He worked for a couple of hours and then hosted a long luncheon, followed by a walk to the tea house for tea, coffee, cake, and cookies, during which people would hang to his lengthy monologues. This finished around 6 in the evening with dinner served at 8, followed by a movie. No one took the trouble to raise the conversation above the level of triviality. So again, there's that banality of evil. These, these events dragged on in monotonous, wearing emptiness, after which everyone went home dead tired, exhausted from doing nothing. So it's interesting that when we, whatever we choose, whenever we're not intentional about trying to align our thoughts and therefore our actions with what is true, you think about what is our natural bent. If we're just sinful by nature our natural inclination is to go towards evil. So even though it, it wouldn't appear that Hitler was always just scheming how he could do the next evil thing, that just was something that he was pursuing even while he was kind of seemed to be kind of careless and focused on trivial things at the same time, which doesn't make sense. It almost seems incongruous in my mind anyway. And one thing that I thought about in... Uh, that reminded me of this was in aerodynamics, there's something that's called dynamic stability or instability. So if you think about a, a bowl that has a marble in the bottom, if you push that marble up the side, eventually it's going to stabilize back in the middle. So you'd call that dynamic stability. It goes back towards a point of neutral. But if you turn it upside down and put the marble on top, it only takes a little bit of displacement, and then it accelerates down, right? It's, it takes a lot of work to hold it back in that one spot. So you generally don't build airplanes that way with dynamic instability unless you're trying to achieve certain things. Well, with evil, if you combine that with not pursuing what is true, not, not learning how to think about a correct view of reality, our natural inclination is just to go off that same cliff. We're not, we're not going to pursue righteousness or things that are good without something else that is causing us to do so. And so that's, in a way, it kind of makes sense, I guess, but it still was weird to read that Hitler was concerned with banality while he was doing such horrible things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, from prison, he wrote this. He said, um, Have there ever been people in history who, in their time, like us, had so little ground under their feet, people to whom every possible alternative open to them at the time appeared equally unbearable, senseless, and contrary to life? So even when you have a lot of good things provided for you, people still pursue these kind of things. Today, while the majority of people say they believe in God, most live as if his existence has little effect on daily life. And that is a true statement when you think about it. John Stone Street said this quote, uh, a worldview is not so much the one that you have, it's the one that has you. Do we live as if Jesus has really risen from the dead and redeemed us? Or do we live as if our belief in him is all that really matters? 
So do we check the box by saying, yes, I believe those things, or are we living in the world that God created and therefore want to try to redeem it? That's kind of another way of saying that. Do we realize that we live in a world God has made, or are we trying to fit God into a world that we have made? Okay, so in order to know where you're going, you kind of have to know where you are on the map, right? Have anybody ever done any like navigation without global positioning system or things like that, trying to figure out where you are on a map? It's pretty tough, I think. I only had to do it once, thankfully, and I wasn't very good at it. In the middle of Colorado woods, we're you know tying knots on a rope to keep track of our steps and trying to use maps and not get caught by people that are trying to find us. It was terrible. I was not good at it at all. But to figure out where you were going to go, you had to find where you were on the map first. And so some of the things this part talks about is, well, let's describe the map. Before we can talk about where do we go with culture, we need to know what is correct around us and know where we are. Now, starting with, with creation. So I went too far. The universe has a divine origin. I'm going to go kind of fast through these because I don't think there should be any surprises. God is spirit. You know, that previous viewpoint, gods were embodied, sexually active, petty, pagan gods. Creation is not God. We don't believe in pantheism. Creation was made perfect. It resulted from God speaking. God organized creation in a structured and orderly way. And humanity has a special place in creation. We're not, we're not slaves. Uh, and then God rested in the end of that. And after God rested, I don't think I have this on there. No. Um, because we're bearing God's image, we have a spiritual capacity to create and relate to other people. We'll talk more about the creation in a minute. But the creation account also exalts work. So look, about, look at that just from a cultural perspective. How have we messed up that idea of work? We kind of view work as like drudgery. It's this bad thing. And even from the standpoint of welfare, Charles Colson talks about this in his book, How Now Shall We Live?, when we give welfare to people that can work, so it's different, I, I get it, there are situations where people absolutely, they wouldn't survive without it. There's a lot that doesn't fall into that category. And so we hand out welfare to people. In one person's worldview, that's the right thing to do. Chuck Colson would say, you are stealing their dignity by doing that. They are created to work, to be able to build and do things. And when you tell them, oh, you can't do it without us, we need to help you, you're actually stealing their dignity because we are created to be able to work. And so that's just one example that stands out uh, when we look at where we are on that map with respect to even being created to work that we can, we can mess that up. Okay, so that's uh, the first couple chapters of Genesis, right? And then we hit Genesis 3 and everything kind of falls apart. So by taking matters into their own hands, our first parents fell into sin. Any action or inaction that violates the will of God is a, the better way to describe that. So what happened? Unbelief, you know, this is the, the age-old questions that we still see today. Did God really say, you know, denying what God says, and then just, well, questioning at first, and then saying, God did not say, denying what he said at all. We think about that in the context of today. Did God really say there's really only male and female? Did God really say marriage is designed to be like this? You know, we, we question all those things, and that still continues to happen today. So unbelief, autonomy, they wanted to be wise on their own terms, irresponsibility. Adam was right there, right, when everything was happening. He was just being passive and hanging out. And then uh, rebellion. We want what we want, and we want it now. Your plan, God, isn't as good as what I have in mind. 
And even though that seems just unbelievable in the context of the garden, how often do we do that? Do we say, God, I know what, you, what you've said is good for me, but I think I want to exchange it for this thing over here that seems better in the short term. So we can we get buy into the same thing. And even worse, we try to explain away our fallenness. Do you guys remember this picture? I remember this from high school whenever we talked about Maslow. You remember what he taught with that pyramid, Maslow's hierarchy of needs? At the very top of that thing, it starts out with, well, you need you know, physical needs, and you go farther up. The second from the top is self-esteem, and the top was, remember, you remember, remember what that was? Self-actualization. So if you can reach the top, it's all about you. Then you have everything you need, and life is good. What do we really see in practice? When you just go live a life that's pursuing your own personal needs and try to get, get, you know, it goes really badly. You end up on the news or, you know, whatever else. Things always end up really badly. But he said, as far as I know, we just don't have any intrinsic instincts for evil. Does that match up with the reality we see around us? Absolutely not. Carl Rogers said, I see members of the human species, like members of other species, as essentially constructive in their fundamental nature, but damaged by their experience. What's a good, how would you ask somebody, if they said something like that, the people, he's saying people are naturally good, right? We've heard this before in the last semester, but it's society, it's culture that messes them up. They're damaged by their experience. What question could you ask somebody that says something like that? Maybe not in those exact words. There's always the, what do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? But if you go to the specifics and say, what do you mean? How do they get damaged by their experience? Are you talking about by other people? Well, how do those people get damaged? And how far back do we go before we run out of reasons of explaining away why people actually act horrible? Maybe it's because we actually have a sin nature. When Greg Kokel is talking sometimes with students, he'll say, uh, especially if it's a non-Christian audience, if it's at a college or somewhere, he'll say, you know, I, I know something about every single one of you, even though I haven't met a lot of you, and that's that you have a poor self-image. I know that. Every single person in here has some part of it that they view and they think, I am not happy with what I see when I look inside. Another way to describe that is that we all feel guilty. It's that G word. Well, why would we feel guilty? That doesn't make sense from an evolutionary standpoint or otherwise. Maybe it's because we are guilty. Maybe that's why we feel that. And that, that makes sense of the world in a better way than what this is describing, that you're just corrupted by other people is kind of what Carl Rogers is saying. Christianity says we're fallen and our attempts at self-repair are fruitless. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. I called Mardell's to see if they had that on a coffee cup and they didn't, but if I, if I find one, I'll let you know. Put that on like a pillow or something. I don't think that would sell very well. Okay. Humanity's ideas about how to save ourselves are part of the problem. I really I want to read this. I know we're, we're running out of time, but Jay Gresham Matchin is a, uh, a theologian and a pastor from a long time ago, but here's what he said. False ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. Just think about that. False ideas are the greatest obstacles. We may preach with all the fervor of a reformer and yet succeed only in winning a straggler here and there. If we permit the whole collective thought of the nation or of the world to be controlled by ideas which, by the resistless force of logic, prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion, so if people can dismiss Christianity because they've decided, that's nice, you guys, that's just silly garbage, you know, you can, you can have your, your feelings and your old stories, 
Under such circumstances, what God desires us to do is to destroy the obstacle at its root. This is really interesting to me because uh, I think he's right on this same idea. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, right? That mind-soul connection. And I just happened to be reading this this week in Luke chapter 10. Jesus is talking about, this is a section like, Woe to unrepentant cities, if you remember that. And he says, Woe to you, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Chorazin, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So wait a minute. So there's a different level of judgment if you have actually been presented with evidence to show you my words are true. I've given you miracles. I've shown you evidence that this is actually I am who I say I am. And now you get a different level of judgment because the expectation is evidence leads to knowledge and it should lead to putting trust in something unless your heart is just hardened and you're like, yeah, your evidence is noted, but I'm still going to reject it. So he's saying your judgment is worse. If these other cities would have seen what you saw, they would have been repentant. They would have been in sackcloth and ashes. So what does that tell us about faith, putting our trust in something? It's just this. Bad ideas, false ideas can be an obstacle, just like good ideas and evidence can help draw people towards what is true because they're presented with it and they have to face it one way or the other. Yes? Luke 10, um, 13 through 15. Yeah. Anyway, it just I thought that was really interesting just to think about. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So we have to guard against those things, which is what he's talking about. All right, so all the bad news and now into redemption. And I'll go kind of quick through these. A lot of this talks about in revolution, uh, Revelation. Not revolution. Um, you can read those. One thing I want to talk about is how redemption can break sin's grip on the world. Seeing how truth is revealed and, and redeeming stuff that are lies being used uh, to fool people or have those, those false ideas like we just talked about can actually break sin's grip. And here's an example from uh, Solomon Ash. In 1950s, you may have heard about this, so he took a group of people that were his kind of subjects and he brought them into a room and he showed them these two different boards that had one, kind of your test line, and then three other ones. Well, all the people in the room were playing along with him. That's, that's who the Stooges are. So the people that were basically part of the experiment, but they were working with him. But then one person didn't know what was going on. So that's the blue person in the question mark. So of these 18 different test cases, um, tw in 12 of those, all the other people, when they asked, well, which line does it match with? They said the wrong one. In other words, you can kind of tell it looks like it matches up with B, right? But when they did something like that, on, on 12 of the 18, all of them, all of them said, oh, it's, uh, it's A or something else. Then they get to the last person who is the, the participant that he doesn't, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going on. And what do you think he does? He goes along with the group. Even though in his mind he's thinking, no way, that's not right. But the pressure of all these people that he doesn't realize are in on it causes him to just say, okay, it's got to be, I must be missing something, right? So he just conforms and goes with it. 
Well, guess what happened when they, all it took was one other person to say, no, it's, it's not that, it's, and to say the correct answer, that when it got to him, as opposed to previously, 75% conformed at least once to the incorrect answer, the test subject. Whenever one dissenter actually said the right thing and all the rest of them were still saying that something that was false, uh, it went down to like 5 to 10%. So when we speak something that is true in an environment where everybody else is kind of nodding along, right? It's like the, the emperor is naked analogy where somebody says, hey, that's not right. Something's wrong here. Other people are like, hey, you know what? That, that is a way of redeeming culture because sometimes all it takes is one person to say, this is not right. Like, what are we doing? And then other people kind of wake up and say, I think he's right. I'm with him. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. As, as redeemed image bearers, we have the opportunity to break sin's grip by speaking the truth to God's, of God's good news in our culture. So the other thing, so here's some examples of trying to speak truth to bad views that are taking place in the culture. Oprah Winfrey said this in uh, 2008, speaking your truth is the most powerful tool that we all have. And that's obviously pushing the idea of relative truth or individualized truth. You're, you're welcome to your own ideas, but you're not welcome to your own truth, right? Truth is what describes reality. Uh, you know who that guy is? Richard Dawkins, real famous atheist. This is another contrasting view that we can try to redeem and bring light to. This is what you result with with a coherent view of atheism. Where does it take you? In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. So that's one of your options that are out there for someone that is trying to make sense of reality. What he's saying is true. If atheism is correct, that's all you get. So how can we redeem that with truth and say that doesn't match up with reality? Uh, redemption makes it possible to be discerning without being cynical. I'm going to skip past that for time. And it replaces bad thinking with good thinking. You can't just be a cynic. That's not enough. You've got to replace it with, with good thinking. Samuel Johnson said, the supreme end of education, what we should be striving for, is expert discernment in all things, the power to tell the good from the bad, the genuine from the counterfeit, and to prefer the good and the genuine to the bad and the counterfeit. So as we pursue truth and, have, and try to achieve that discernment, do we think that education today is doing that? Is it trying to teach discernment? In general, we're not telling young people how to think. We're telling them what to think. We say, this is what, this is what the answer is. With few exceptions, we're not teaching logic or rational thought, how to evaluate ideas on their merits. This is uh, Alan Bloom. He wrote this book, The Closing of the American Mind, back in 1987, I think. Yeah, that, this was 87. I don't remember the uh, date on that one. He said, there's, also, there's one thing a professor could be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. The student, of course, cannot defend their opinion. It is something with which they have just been indoctrinated. That was in 87, so you can imagine the strength of that today. You remember seeing the video of the University of Washington campus where the guy's going around, and he's like, what if I told you I was a woman? Yeah, I'd say that's great. What if I told you I was six foot five, and he's five nine? You remember watching that? 
that was it. They, they've been told what to think. You do not question somebody's anything. If they tell you that they're a 5'9 Chinese woman and it's a, or a, a six foot five Chinese woman and it's a 5'9 white guy, you don't question it because they've been taught this is what you think instead of how to think. So I think he was very uh, knowledgeable to talk about this way back then. We grow in discernment when we ask the right questions when we encounter cultural claims of truth. What do they want you to do? Why? To what motives? How do they make their case persuasive? That's usually missing, right? There's very little persuasion taking place. It's just believe this or else. Can they really deliver what that idea promises and what is best? And redemption aligns our emotions with the truth. So we're not meant to be dry, rational people. You know, we don't have emotions or feelings. That doesn't jive with what the Bible teaches. Uh, but through the Holy Spirit, we train our emotions to respond to truth in, in the correct way. And I'm going to go kind of fast through these. There's, the notes are all, should already be on there. So sorry for going quick through that. We talked about creativity being part of the design, right? Even when we look at non-Christians, obviously, Steve Jobs, Henry Ford, Gutenberg, um, we were built to be able to create by thinking of things based off what do people need. Even if they don't know that they need it or want it, what could I create off of that? Henry Ford said, if people ask me, if I would ask people what they wanted, they would have said, I, I want a faster horse. Well, he said, okay, I think I, I know something better. I'm going to create something different than that. And we got to ask these questions ourselves. So what's good in the culture that we can promote, protect, and celebrate? Our culture celebrates some really dumb things. So when we can see opportunities to celebrate things that are good, excellent, and praiseworthy, right? We're told to celebrate those things. we got to jump on those because they're, they can be hard to find. What's missing that we can creatively contribute? What's evil in our culture that we can stop? What's broken in our culture that we can restore? And you don't have to be some you know, Fortune 500 company to do that. One example is a, uh, there's an organization called Live Action that has been very effective in going against the you know, multi-billion dollar Planned Parenthood organization by undercover videos and things showing this is what's actually going on behind the scenes, like telling minors that have been uh, raped to hide that information so that the police don't show up, or you know, catching Planned Parenthood individuals talking about selling body parts to science organizations, things like that. That was just a few people that said, what's broken in our culture that we can restore? Man, this is broken. Maybe I can do something to shed some light on what's actually taking place here. So what keeps us from engaging the culture? Fear is a big one, right? Man, we could talk a lot about fear in recent days and years and the impact on people. It makes people act in really strange ways. It can make us act unkind towards each other. Um, we often fear to act because of what others will think, but that fear isn't condoned in Scripture. There's a lot of Scripture that talks about speaking up for those who can't speak for themselves. We just gave some examples of that, to have courage and to proclaim his message of redemption. Uh, just for time, I'm going to go past this. One example, this, this is another what would you say video, talking about um, when it comes to politics, we're afraid to say things because somebody will say, like, hey, you need to keep your religious stuff separate, you know, like separation of church and state. That's, you can't be doing that. Well, if you understand the background of that, that's not at all what that means. It's not in the Constitution. And as Christians, that would be like telling somebody else, hey, you need, to, you need to leave your brain somewhere else. Like, you can't bring your worldview here. Well, we all carry around a worldview every day, right? If it comes from Christianity, a Christian worldview, or atheism, being able to share your thoughts on that, whether or not you go to a church or you think churches shouldn't exist, we all have the freedom to do that. Thankfully, 
for now, right? Hopefully that sticks around. Uh, we also sometimes don't want to engage culture because we can get friendly fire from other Christians. Uh, C.S. Lewis emphasized that Christians should work together around their shared beliefs and essential doctrines. Sometimes we mess that up. Um, I think it was Derek Ewald that was preaching. He listed the numbers of different Baptist churches there are. There was some crazy, it was like 70 or 80 just Baptists alone. And some of the names of them were pretty entertaining, but we don't do a good job of focusing on what's essential, right? Sometimes we divide over things that are not really in that category. Um, sometimes when you're getting flack, it means you're in the right place. You're over the target, right? That's, that should tell you if you're receiving fire that you're in a place that doesn't want you to be there. And if you're a Christian, sometimes that, that's to be expected. In this world, you will have tribulation, right? But take heart, I've, come, I've overcome the world. But we still need to have a spirit of humility, graciousness, a desire to examine our own ideas and figure out, am I missing the mark? Is it something that I've got wrong? Greg Kokel sometimes says, I know that I have some ideas that are false. I guarantee you I have some theology that's not right. I just don't know what it is yet. So we need to have that humility to say, I'm, I'm always trying to learn and figure out what are my beliefs, do they match up with what is true, or am I still trying to figure this out? And then lastly, getting too close. So we, getting close to the culture, we have to, but we can't be tempted by the very sins that we're trying to stand against. And that is a hard line, and that requires wisdom and constant discernment. Uh, there's a lot of examples I could go into with that, but these are some important questions that we get to ask, whether or not culture is affecting you as we try to engage. So it's human nature to deny that we're affected by what takes place. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 says, don't be misled, bad company corrupts good character. And if we're having to make excuses for, well, that's, you know, it's not really changing me that much, then chances are we're probably too close. Uh, for example, watching movies that we ought not watch because, well, we're looking at how they portray different worldviews or habitually listening to degrading music to better understand the culture. If we're having to make excuses like that, that should tell us, no, we're too close to the culture. Are we losing our sense of distress? Paul was greatly distressed by the sin that he saw in Athens. If we're losing that, if we become kind of numb to sin that's around us and it doesn't strike us, like when you see something on TV that is offensive or that is uh, an inappropriate depiction of marriage or whatever else and it doesn't phase you at all, then you maybe have gotten too close and become numb to it. Or are you trying to do it by yourself? Nobody lies to you better than you do. I heard somebody say that one time. I was like, that is totally true. We lie to ourselves about things, whether we're trying to justify something or otherwise. So we need, we need that community because our ability for self-deception knows no bounds. John Stone Street said, they said, sin makes you dumb. It makes you so dumb that you will deceive yourself. Man, that is completely true. So as Proverbs 27.6 says, faithful the wounds of a friend. We need people to look us in the eye and tell us when we're acting like idiots or <laughs> doing something wrong. Man, that is such a blessing to have a friend who's willing to do that. Uh, Thomas Sowell is an economist, and he says, if you really love someone, you're willing to tell them what they need to hear. If you just tell them what they want to hear, it's really because you care more about yourself. And we have to be willing to do that with kindness and graciousness, but uh, do it nonetheless. Okay, so here's kind of a summary. To be able to shape the culture, we first have to grow. We have to be prepared for it. We have to have virtue, awareness, and wisdom as we carry out our mission we immerse ourselves in community and challenge one another as iron sharpens iron. This encourages us despite fear. It sustains us through friendly fire and enables them to continue exerting an influence without being compromised, which is easier said than done sometimes, uh, by the very aspect of culture that we're trying to shape.
I'll say one last thing. We seek to influence culture in the only truly enduring fashion by shining the light of the world on it. That light through truth, I thought this analogy was really great that I'm just going to read it so I don't, I don't mess it up. The light of the gospel isn't a lesser light that only illuminates the path of those nearest to it, nor is it a spotlight shining on the actions of a few while hiding all else in shadow. It's like the light of the sun ruling the day, shining light everywhere so that even those who are completely lost may find their way. In the light of the sun, the darkness and all that prosper therein must flee. So when we expose things that are broken in the culture to truth, that doesn't mean that those individuals are going to necessarily say, hey, yeah, you're right, thanks for telling me that. Sometimes they're going to be against you, be angry. People don't like to be told that there is a moral law from a supreme moral lawgiver, and there's consequences for what we're doing. The gospel is offensive, right? We do our best to make it no more offensive than necessary through the manner in which we share it. But the gospel does that, man. It, it shares, it provides light through common grace to a lot of people and can save someone even who's not a Christian from undergoing a lot of pain and suffering um, because of their own poor decisions, right? Co- common grace does that for us. So if we follow what God's law says, even if you don't believe in God, now you suffer less and maybe are in a situation where now you're more receptive to the gospel because you're not way more deep in trouble as a result. So that's kind of a couple quick points at the end there of how we should view our opportunity to engage the culture. And from a practical standpoint, it's easy to say, okay, so how do we do that? If you see changes in your own life, even if it's with your family, make the changes. And if they're like, why are we doing this all of a sudden? We'll tell them like, hey, I think this is something we are not doing quite right and have the humility to do that. Use your time wisely. We talked about that with Tim, right? Every day is a gift. We're not guaranteed a single minute So what do we do with that time? If you have idle time when you could be listening to podcasts, audiobooks, things are going to draw you closer to God and make you a better ambassador for him, do that. Let your kids see you reading the Bible daily and memorizing scripture. Because kids can tell if you really believe this is true or it's just something that we do on a weekly basis, right? Treat family meals as sacred. Yeah, start early, it's never too late, and make room for those questions with with your family. And I put these links on the back as well. Look, at, look for opportunities for worldview world training for yourself and for young people. Um, and then we've talked about these books a lot before. Practical Guide to Culture is great. Rick has talked about that a lot. And as he always says, I'm sure they're available in the bookstore. I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is uh, amazing. That's one of my favorites. Um, Elisa Childers came and spoke to the women's ministry here. I was pretty jealous that we didn't get to hear that. As it wasn't worth it, though, to try to identify something else just to go, so I wasn't going to do that. This one is also, also really good with respect to engaging the culture. It's called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture by Natasha Crane. It's an excellent book. I'm sure they have it uh, in there as well. So I think all these are on the back. But like we talked about in the beginning, if you see this and you think, man, I do want to be more prepared to engage the culture so that when those conversations come up, I don't shy away from them. Just find one thing this week to do differently, whether it's carving out an hour or 30 minutes to read something that's worthwhile in addition to reading the Word and and memorizing Scripture. Because if we don't make those small incremental changes, just like Tim was very intentional with his choices with people, we have to be intentional with the choices that we're going to make to try to be different. Otherwise, we all know what happens, myself included. Life happens and you get busy, and then a year, five, ten years from now, you're like, man, I wish I'd read more of that stuff or been more prepared for this conversation that I'm having right now 
with this person who has been brought into my life. And that's how we get there, it's just through those individual changes. So hopefully that provides some practical um, things that we can think about. All right, I want to let you guys go. If you have any more questions or if you want to, um, th there's one more thing I was going to show you that I could, I could bring up with you on an individual basis if you want to come up and look at one more thing, but I want to make sure we get out on time. That was a lot, and I know I was going kind of fast. Any questions? Okay. Well, I really appreciate you all being here. I hope you have a great week. And I'm going to try to do the same thing myself and look at how am I carving out my time to be able to engage the culture better. So let me pray for us. God, thank you again for just our time together tonight. And um, we know that uh, you are the one that's able to do uh, far more than all that we ask or think. And we give glory and praise to you for that, for just giving us minds to be able to understand who you are and how that um, affects how we want to live, because we want to be like you and want to be a light for the, the people that are around us that are lost. Please help us to do that this week. Uh, give us patience and grace with others, just as you've done with us, and protect us as we go. Amen.